0: This is James Eklund coming to you from the great headwater state of Colorado. You're listening to the Water Values Podcast.
1: The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Trinix, Trust and What's Next. By Mentor APM, Intelligent Asset Management Software, Built for Water. By Woodard and Curran, High Quality Consulting Engineering, Science and Operations Services. By Intera, Innovation and Stewardship. For a sustainable tomorrow by xylem let's solve water by the american waterworks association dedicated to the world's most important resource and by black and veatch building a world of difference this is session 247 Welcome to the Water
2: Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now, here's your host, Dave McGimsey.
1: Hello, and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey, and thank you so much for joining me. I hope everyone has had a terrific start to their holiday season. And we have a great show for you today. Tilly Walton, host of the PBS series. Wild Rivers with Tilly joins us for a great look at the restorative power of water and water's impact on our lives. Tilly provides a great and much needed perspective in my opinion, especially at this time of year where everyone's rushing to close deals, finish projects, get things done by the end of the year. It's just a much needed message. Uh, Plus Reese Tisdale is back for another Bluefield on tap segment after we couldn't connect and get uh, one recorded for November. So, uh, that two-month hiatus comes to an end and Reese is back for a Bluefield on Tap segment. Well, as you know, we always say thank you to our awesome sponsors at the top of every show. The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by Trinex, Mentor APM, Woodard & Curran, Interra, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, and Black and & Veatch. And that, my friends, as you all know, is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry thought leadership and education. And I thank you all. And I'd like for you to do me a favor, if you would, please. If you work for or with any of those sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsor firm and let them know you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. That simple little note of thanks will go a long way. Believe me, I hear all the time about how sponsors have been contacted by either their employees or someone who works with them. So thank you very much. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know how much you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you access the podcast on. It's greatly appreciated, and also it helps others find out about the podcast. And also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Yes, I'm told that is somewhat important. So before we head on to the interview with Tilly, let's go to our Bluefield on Tap segment with Bluefield Research's Reese Tisdale. So take it away, guys. Reese, welcome back to another Bluefield on Tap. We missed you last month, uh, so it's been two months now. How you doing?
0: It's Actually, now that you say that, it's good now that I've got internet, again, or at least reliable <laughs> internet. I was, I was in Tennessee and... Uh, you know, I you'd think that I would have good internet, but I didn't. So here we are. Good to good to hear your voice. Good to uh good to see you.
1: Amen. Likewise. Uh so a lot lot has transpired in the water sector over the last two months. What is catching your mind? What's top of mind for the blue folks at Bluefield uh at present?
0: Yeah, so I mean there's been some M&A. there's been, you know, news here and there, but obviously and maybe this is the timing is perfect because just uh yesterday, yesterday morning, the uh, EPA just uh, announced the improvements to the lead and copper rule. So it looks like they're going forward with uh, their proposed plan to uh, make some changes and sort of tighten the screws on the uh, on cities and utilities uh, and communities when it comes to lead and water quality overall.
1: Yeah. So when you say improvements to the lead and copper rule, can you kind of expand on that a little bit for us?
0: Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, you and I are closer to the same age than maybe some of the listeners. And so, lead's been a problem for a long time. Lead and copper rule actually has been around since 1991. Um, So, it's not for lack of recognition as lead is a problem, um, you know, for health and childhood development in many cases. So, uh, the EPA, you know, put guidelines in place And it's evolved over time, but for the most part, you know, there haven't been significant changes. And so really when the Biden administration came in, this was one of the focus areas. I think it was partly tied to broader infrastructure week and improvements, but also just water quality, whether it be lead and, you know, other things like PFAS. But in this case, um, EPA has now basically set a timeline for mitigating lead in, uh, and public water supplies, community and non-transient, non-community water systems. Got
1: it. And so, w- what's kind of the? Uh, what are some of the upcoming deadlines that utilities need to be aware of? And so, yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. I'm, 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 I'm jumpy about it. So, uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, So the biggest thing. So they made the proposal. There's going to be about a sixty-day comment period. Um, as it happens, but really the next big deadline is next October, October, 2024, in which cities and communities need to provide an inventory and or, um, sort of remediation plan for, uh, lead tested in their, in their water supplies.
1: Yep. And how much, do you have any, you know, figures in terms of how much all this is going to cost?
0: You know, Bluefield, so we did a look at this in 20, I believe it was 2019, because the question kept coming up and bubbling. And so at the time, we estimated about a $32 billion market. Since then, that number has continued to climb, I think, partly just because of inflation and um, labor and everything else uh, related to it, but also just, I think, discovery of more and more um, lead. So It's going to be pretty significant i mean to put things in perspective you know i think we've talked about this at bluefield we look at capital improvement plans for about 750 utilities every year and as part of this exercise i was talking to the team and you know what data do we have who's spending on it so city of pittsburgh from 2023 to 2027 they're going to spend 136 million on lead service line replacement city of grand rapids michigan another $25 million over the next four years, and Louisiana was going to do another $54 million. So these are real dollars that are going to be spent, um, in, at least in their cases.
1: Yeah. And I know that, uh, I don't know if this is true for all states, but I know in, in in my state of Indiana, utilities that have been proactive in dealing with this have received actually grants from uh, the the entity that operates the State Revolving Fund to help defray some of the costs of putting together the lead service line inventory and things of that nature so it's been it, it pays to be uh, proactive in this for for the utilities it seems to me
0: yeah and in the case of indiana i mean shout out to 120 water i mean that's an indiana-based company that um you know they're helping doing they're sort of they that's what they've launched their business on really is inventorying i think they really started with schools and, you know, they've expanded beyond Indiana and other states. So it's interesting. There are a number of different players that are targeting. It's sort of a weird, you know, there's a lot of money that's going to be spent, but it's a lot of really small jobs. So, you know, it kind of it's the the opportunity is really bifurcated in two ways and bifurcated. And that is one is inventorying. So companies that are uh, either developed or presenting solutions to understand what the extent of the problem is. But then the second part of that is is the remediation piece, and that's really just local contractors coming in and replacing uh, lead service lines.
1: Good points, Reese. Now, um, what's your take on where lead is primarily found, or is this kind of a this is kind of a uh, uh, a problem everywhere, or are there certain regions that are more affected by lead service lines than others?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, really, as you could expect, um, lead is usually reflective of older pipes. Um, they're, it's not obviously used anymore. So, you're looking at places like, you know, sort of the mid-Atlantic belt from, say, Illinois over to the mid-Atlantic and up and down the east, eastern seaboard. That's where a lot of the dollars... I think I came across something the, it depending on how you count the numbers and who's done the inventorying, like Illinois is one, actually one of the biggest uh, problem states geographically. Rhode Island is another one. So that kind of gives you an idea. And, you know, as far as, you know, I mentioned Pittsburgh and Grand Rapids, um, they fall right in those uh, target zones. So that's where a lot of the dollars are going to be going, um, going forward. Got it.
1: Well, Reese, thanks for uh, enlightening us on this issue and uh, appreciate it. And we'll have a great holiday and we'll talk to you soon.
0: Yeah, it's we're, we're there. We're in the holiday season. Look forward to it. And uh, we'll talk soon.
1: Cool. Thanks, Reese. We'll talk to you. As always, great information from Bluefield Research and Reese Tisdale. Now it's time for the main event, the interview with Tilly Walton. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Tilly, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. It is great to have you on. How are you today?
2: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. And um, thank you for raising awareness about water. Oh,
1: you are very welcome. And I am, I'm very excited to speak with you, Tilly. I'm really looking forward to our conversation and uh, hearing about the rivers that you've been on and some other aspects of your work. Uh, But for those who may not be familiar with you, can you kind of give a brief background of how you came to be interested in water and what you're doing these days?
2: Sure. Well, I, I guess I fell in love with rivers when I was 19. Uh, It was part, I was part of a high school experiential education class my senior year of high school. And it was sort of an outward bound type of thing. And we went hiking in big bend national park and, You know, as city kids, we hiked 14 miles a day. We planned all of our menus. We starved. Um, It was was pretty challenging. But as part of that, we had three days on a river, which I really hadn't done before. And there we were on these canoes and there was a moment where the guide said, you know, put your paddle in the boat and lean back and watch the canyon go by. And as I did that, I don't know, there's something about the water moving under me in the canyon walls moving by. And I was reading Ed Abbey at the time and something just clicked. And I was, you know, I just said, this is it. Mm -hmm. And it didn't hurt that one of the guides was very good looking and he happened to be a river guide. And so I said, how do I become a river guide? And, you know, I kind of thought that I was falling in love with the boy, but it was really, I think it led to my true love, which is rivers and water. And so, you know, he kind of went his own way, but I've Followed the path of the river ever since. And it evolved into a career of guiding river trips on rivers kind of all over the world, but primarily um, North America and the Grand Canyon. And I just became so interested in it that I then went back to school to pursue a degree in environmental science and hydrology. And, um, you know, I've been into hydrology and water resources and environmental management and planning. All focused on rivers, and that you know, one thing has just kind of led to another. I've been involved in lots of restoration projects, philanthropic work, and um, most recently, uh, this TV series called "Wild Rivers" with Tilly on PBS.
1: That that's awesome. That your your career choice has led to that that varied of a life or that varied of a career. I mean, you you're doing all kinds of different things. Uh, going all over the world, tra- you know, traveling on these rivers. How, how does a, how do you get a TV show anyway? I mean,
2: like... <laughs> very unplanned and very organically. <laughs> uh, actually prior to this uh, I had never spoken in public. I didn't make public appearances. So it's, it's kind of an odd thing that I have a TV show, but it happened that David Yetman with PBS from the David Yetman in the Americas TV show had come through and had wanted to meet with me to discuss rivers and water. And we weren't able to meet for the, you know, his interview, but I went out to dinner with them and we started talking and we started talking about the importance of rivers. And they said, well, Hey, could you put a trip together on the Colorado river through the grand Canyon Forest?" And I said, no problem. And I ended up inviting all of the water experts that I knew, thinking that they would talk to David Yetman about their expertise and uh, that the show would be based on them. But what ended up happening is I ended up co-hosting the show with David Yetman. And we had such a great time that he said, well, why don't we continue to follow the Colorado River past the Grand Canyon? And we ended up filming that. And... Um, at the end of that, actually, it was very significant because, you know, through the Grand Canyon, you have this wild and magnificent Colorado River. And we came to right below Morelos Dam, below Yuma, Arizona. And it's basically where the river runs dry because the Colorado River no longer reaches the Sea of Cortez. And so when we were down there filming, we came across this dry expanse of Riverbed, And, you know, the Colorado River is a river that provides water for 40 million people, seven different states, you know, two countries, Mexico and the United States, and um, many of the sovereign Native American tribal nations. And we came down to the end of of this stretch, and all we saw was sand, and then there was a tiny trickle of water that came by and it had plastic bottles floating in it, and you could literally step over it. So when we stepped over this little trickle that once was a mighty Colorado River, it kind of clicked for me about, it is so important for more people to understand what's happening to the rivers uh, in our country as well as around the world. And so after that trip, they had said, would you be willing to co-host the show with David? And I said, sure, I've never done that. Why not? It would be fun. And then COVID hit. And so David stopped filming for a while and I was missing the river. And so I said, well, why don't we put another trip together? Because this last one was so amazing. And we had so many folks do these incredible contributions and incredible projects came out of the trip. And so I brought a bunch of folks together from diverse backgrounds who actually had nothing to do with the river and I invited the cameraman along, and I said, "Why don't we film? I don't know what we'll do with it." And at the end, he said, "Well, why don't we make a TV show?" And I said, "Oh, okay." And so we pitched it to pBS. They accepted, and I guess the rest is history.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. So it's not like Seinfeld at all, right uh...
2: <laughs> no nope. i it's um it's it's ever evolving and very organic. so, the funny thing about the TV show is we do not have a script, so we never know the story that's going to come out of it. We invite experts along, uh, you know, a lot of oftentimes members of the Native American tribes that have been on these rivers since time immemorial, and we we film as we go along, but we don't have a plot as when we when we start and at the end the cameraman. Uh, Dan Duncan, who's just brilliant, he's won a bunch of Emmys. Uh, he goes back and he says, "Oh, I see these different threads through here," and he pulls it all together and puts it into the story. So they're completely un- unscripted adventures, and we never know what's going to happen.
1: That's fascinating. I'd love, I love the the peek behind the curtain, so to speak. Yes. Um, well, <laughs> I, I I think I could ask you all day about questions about your your PBS show, uh, but but let's let's kind of talk about and get down into some of the other issues that you've raised. Um, before we get on to that, so you, you've indicated rivers all over the, primarily North America, but all over the world. What are, can you just give a sampling? We know the Colorado River, but what are some of the other rivers that you've kind of been on?
2: Uh, yeah, well, I began my career as a river guide on the Arkansas River in Colorado. And, uh, you know, I've been on the Salmon River, Uh Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, uh, most of the rivers throughout Utah and California. Um, We just had the opportunity to do the Devil's River in Texas, which was really amazing. Um, The Rio Grande in Texas, um, some rivers in New Zealand and Australia. Um, I don't know, just basically all over, but not, the only, I have yet to do rivers in the Eastern United States. And so I'm looking forward to that.
1: Okay. Excellent. So it's good to get that, that, uh, that, that background. So when you're, I I got a sense of it, but can you expand a little bit on when we say, you know, you're you're spending time on the river, what, what's that mean to you?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So time on the river, um, that's actually, uh, that's actually kind of spending 24-7 on the river. So most of the river trips that I do are multi-day expeditions. And so it'll involve, you know, putting on the river. Usually you don't have cell service or, you know, internet or anything uh, for, you know, it used to be when I was 19 that I would do 21-day long trips. But now that life has gotten a little more complex, uh, you know, it's anywhere (laughs) forward to, seven days, but you know, any time on the river is great, but it involves, you know, bringing all of your, everything that you need with you, all of your food, all of your equipment, um, packing everything in, packing everything out, um, floating down the river, camping on the side of the river, cooking on the river, uh, you know, doing side hikes, whatever it is, um, doing restoration projects, conducting science, um, interviewing folks, like everything is kind of done on the river. So I guess time on the river actually means, um, <laughs> in or, or on a boat or alongside the river, uh, continuously for multiple days at a time,
1: Yeah, you know, based on your experience and, you know, you've spent years on these rivers. Can you speak a little bit about how the rivers have changed over the course of time?
2: Yeah, actually, let's see. That's a great question. So a river is always changing. It's never stagnant, which is one of the beautiful things about a river. One of the projects that I had the the privilege of working on was a repeat history, a, a repeat photography project. So we took photos from the, you know, 1895 through about 1920s and we went back and we found the exact location and rematched the photograph. So you could see what the river looked like basically a hundred years ago. And so these kind of snapshots through time show a lot of the changes and a lot of the changes are because of our, the way we manage rivers and dam operations. So most of what we saw were pre-dam Photos and so the the differences were primarily in the vegetation. A lot of native vegetation is no longer there, and uh, primarily, especially along the Colorado River, which is where a lot of my work was, uh, it's been taken over by tamarisk and invasive species. So that's a huge change. Um, most of the rivers used to be meandering with lots of big sandy deposits. They're now more channelized. Uh, most of the beaches are gone. Um, you know, one of the most drastic, I guess, examples I've seen that, you know, isn't over time is, I I believe it was the Klamath River that I was on at one point. And we had arrived late because the car had run out of gas. And uh, we put on the river and they turned the dam off, essentially. And the river went from this huge thing that we were rafting on to a tiny trickle and our boats were stuck on the side of the river. And then the next morning, the water came back up and, you know, we were able to go again, but, uh, and you also see that in the grand Canyon, we call it the, it's, it's essentially like the tides of an ocean um, depending on the dam operations. And it'll go anywhere from, you know, say 5,000 cubic feet per second to Twenty thousand CFS um, within the course of you know however many hours they're allowed to ramp it up or ramp it down. So, um, and and it's interesting because I think I've also seen a change in the health of the river, especially the Colorado River, as uh, as the years have gone on, and we're we're facing more significant drought. Um, you know, when I first started on the Colorado River, you would put your feet in the water at the put-in and they would be so cold they they'd be numb. And you know, it was great for keeping your beers cold, but it was it was really like if you took a swim, you know, you would really get hypothermic very quickly. Fast forward to say this September when I just did a trip, the water is so warm that it barely will keep your your beers cold. And it's, you know, it's comfortable to be in the water at the put in and it only gets warmer as it moves downstream. So, you know, big differences also in terms of beaches, like when they do a beach building flow in the Grand Canyon, it'll build up the the sides of the banks and you have these big, wonderful sandy beaches um, to camp on. So, you know, it's I think most of the changes have come about, uh, basically because of our, our ways of, of managing these systems.
1: Yeah. And so you mentioned, first of, first off, I didn't realize I was speaking when you were, when you were speaking, I had flashbacks to Dr. Plaker lecturing on Heraclitus, you know, you can never step in the same river twice.
2: Uh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: But, but you mentioned, uh, getting back to my point, you mentioned that, You've worked on restoration projects, and I think hearing you describe how rivers have changed over time, when you've worked on these restoration projects, can you kind of give a sampling of what the goal of the restoration project was and how you accomplished the restoration?
2: Sure. Yeah, one example would be the Yuma East Wetlands Restoration Project down in Yuma, Arizona. When we first started on that project, we came in and... The river was filled with tamarisk. Uh, it was incredibly dangerous. People said, do not go down to the water by yourself. Um, it was it was very unsafe. Uh, a lot of the native birds and wildlife that depended on the area were no longer there. Um, you know, it was kind of like a it was kind of a river forgotten about the community. And on on one side was the Quixan Nation and on the other side was the city of Yuma. And uh, the city and the tribe hadn't really spoken to each other in about 50 years. And so uh, the Yuma Heritage Area decided to start this restoration project and they uh, brought Fred Phillips Consulting in to create this project. And I was working for Fred at the time so, so we met some super interesting characters as we're bushwhacking through the Tamaris, doing our soil surveys and our groundwater sampling and doing all the mapping. Um, one of them named we would go in and we would tell folks in these encampments living by the river, like, hey, we're gonna come in and do this big restoration project. And we would welcome you working with us if you'd like. Or if not, we just wanted to let you know that that this is gonna be changing. And we actually ended up uh becoming very good friends with some of the folks and, um, uh, some of the folks who are homeless that were living there ended up being involved in the restoration project. Um, and so then we came in and we, we removed all the invasive species, the tamarisk, the, um, the various, uh, phragmites, like all, all the non non-NATOs were removed. And then we, ended up replanting, uh, NATOs. But the, the interesting thing that came out of all of this were that in addition to restoring the native vegetation along the river, it was actually, I think most unexpected and interesting part of the restoration projects was actually the, the rest, the restoring of the relationships and the community's connection to the river. So the city of Yuma and the Poisson nation, they actually ended up winning multiple awards for working together on these restoration projects. And um, there, we did lots of youth cultural, we would do a youth cultural festival. We'd bring young kids in, they would help plan the plant, the native plants. Uh, we built trails along the river and it was in conjunction with an economic redevelopment of Yuma. And so what eventually happened when we were back down there you know fast forward 20 years 15 20 years later and we were back down there filming one of the episodes for david yetman uh you know we got to see like these little cottonwood poles that we had planted in willows they had grown up to be huge trees uh we were down there at 6am and there were women jogging by themselves. There were people pushing baby strollers through, through the trails. I mean, it was really just incredible to see, you know, it was a place that the community used. It was a place that the community was connected to. Uh, A lot of the monitoring showed, uh, you know, endangered species coming back, uh, you know, just a whole restoration of the habitat. And, you know the the kind of the farming the agricultural community the tribes the city everybody kind of came together in this restoration and everybody had a part of it and so you know it wasn't just the wildlife that was restored or the the hydrolog- hydrological functioning of the of that piece of the river but but really like a community as a whole
1: it, that that's fascinating that uh the, when cuz most folks when you think of you know, rehabilitation or restoration projects, it, it has a a strictly environmental benefit, but you've described it, not just the environmental benefit, but much, much in much broader terms. Um, you know, almost like we've had Dr. Wallace J. Nichols on before, who's talked about the blue mine. And it sounds like you're heading that direction, uh, kind of with the, the, your time on the river and things of that nature. Could you, could you talk about kind of, the elements you see that how, how rivers and water play a role in, in blue mind and and the environmental vitality and other aspects of, of uh, well-being.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's such a healing power in water. And I came to this work with a scientific background in hydrology and, and, and knowing that I love the river through, through rafting, but, I think what's becoming more apparent for me the more time I spend on the water is just the healing power of of rivers in particular but water as a whole and that's uh Wallace J Nichols concept of blue mind is just you know why do we feel good around water I mean when we're on the whether it's you know I think what I everybody has their water origin story so almost each person who is interested in water can think back to whether it's that, you know, pond they used to go crawdad fishing in or the river that they floated down as a kid, or just standing by the side of the ocean or, you know, taking a bath or enjoying the sh- the shower. Like everybody has a connection to water and it's because it's scientifically been proven that water has these calming properties that and 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 the the research is kind of new and and Wallace J. Nichols has kind of coined this term of of blue mind um and and the book about the 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 science behind why we feel good around water um but I think there's really a lot more to rivers and water not only for the health of our planet but the health of of us as a human species and and the health of each other and and there's these healing opportunities and properties of water that that are just starting to be recognized and as i do more of this work i originally came to it from a science background that evolved into you know the restoration work and the rafting and and all of these things and the more I've done it the more I've realized like the reason why I like to do it is because I feel good when I'm on the river and I notice people it's you know once a year I run an annual Grand Canyon trip where I invite folks from various backgrounds to come together um and they start off complete strangers and they they end up as friends and family uh but I watch kind of their light come on and I've I've watched people heal trauma. I've, you know, they actually have this study out lately where they're uh they use water and they found it to be a very effective treatment for PTSD. Uh so there's really I think it's it's actually like almost a new frontier in medicine this uh, healing property of 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 water and you know it's it's probably Not just time on the river, but, you know, time being in nature, time connecting with each other, time connecting to the planet, like just that chance to to calm down and really focus on what's important. And, you know, we get so there's so much static and noise in our everyday lives with our emails and our phone calls and our, you know, all the business busyness of this modern world. You know, I think water gives us a chance to pause and slow down enough to reconnect to ourselves. And, you know, when we're given that chance to reconnect to ourselves, it's, it's just more of a chance to heal. And uh, I think that's an incredibly important aspect of water that we don't recognize in, you know, when we come, when we come and we're just looking at it from a you know, all the ways that we normally look at water, like producing electricity, you know, our drinking water, like all the incredible functions that it serves, agriculture. But there's also the incredible importance of, of water is just feeding the human soul as well. And and truth be told, that's why I like to spend all my time on rivers whenever I can.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a, I love your perspective. You've just got a beautiful outlook on 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 water and It's importance in our lives. Now, one of the other aspects that you mentioned when, when you did the restoration project was you brought the communities together and that kind of, you know, takes on a cultural and historical significance, uh, aspect. So can you, can you expand on, on the cultural and historical significance of rivers and that, from that perspective?
2: Yeah. I mean, rivers and water have been historically the gathering places for communities, you know, going way back in history. And, you know, it's off, they're oftentimes the places where families go to picnic or, you know, to gather, but they've, there's a lot of cultural and historical significance to rivers. You know, I think if you go back and, to the Native American tribes, waters and rivers are the lifeline of this planet. And in so many, uh, in so many different Native American tribes, the river is, it, it is the lifeblood of this earth. And so particularly a lot of the tribes I've worked with, they have an incredible cultural connection to not only the water, but like, for example, a lot of the tribes in the Northwest, In the northwest united states to the salmon um you know i think as you move more into uh more recent history you have the economic importance of rivers you know through commerce and you know those were the ways that we transported all of our grains and all of you know everything that we used for our, our our economic growth um But I think that rivers also are a huge place of connection for communities, and the places where communities have reconnected to the river, like for example, the San Antonio Riverwalk in Texas, you know, and the places where communities are able to uh, combine that economic uh, sector as well as uh, bringing in a community. They've found uh, huge areas of growth, and all of these areas where you have like a river walk, or you have a connection, a community has a connection to the to the water. Uh, the economic values go way up as well.
1: So, Tilly, I I have thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you today. You've been I even me when I do this podcast, I, I like to try and take as, as an expansive view as I can, but oftentimes I too get lost in the in the intricacies of water in the specific portion you know things um you know certain aspects of it and so i love the the broader focus you've kind of panned me back here so i really appreciate that uh do you have a leave behind message that you, you'd like to share with the listeners
2: and if- i just say get out there and connect to water you know just just get out there and connect to water uh and you'll feel better. I, you know, as, as we're talking, I'm actually looking at um a, a river flowing by, which is a treat. Uh but I'd say, you know, I, I think maybe I might leave you with the suggestion of urban blue mind. And usually when I'm when I'm in a city, I usually try to find whether it's the you know a fountain or even a ditch along the side of the road. Uh, I like to kind of pause and pull over even to the side of the road and take a moment to even walk down to the water, listen to the birds. Uh, You know, sometimes if I'm in a big city with less opportunities, like even to take that moment in the shower to have the gratitude and appreciation for this most precious resource. I don't know. I just think I'd offer that as a consideration for, Just putting a little bit of more blue mind in your day and having having the chance to connect water wherever you can, because obviously your listeners here deeply care about this. Um, And then I guess the other suggestion I would have is continue to raise awareness about water and rivers, because, you know, most people don't know about it. Uh, So I think the more that we talk about it, I think rivers and the people who depend upon rivers, they all need a voice. So I'd encourage everybody to be the voice for the river.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tilly. Uh, for those who want to find out more about you and your work and your show, where can they go to get that information?
2: Uh, yes. Well, multiple places. There's uh wild rivers with Tilly.org. There's my website, which is tillykwalton.com. And uh And Instagram handles are Tilly Tilly Walton official and Wild Rivers with Tilly.
1: Tilly, I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you today. So thank you so much for coming on and carving out a little time to chat with us. Really appreciate it. And I wish you the best.
2: Thank you so much. And, and thanks for you and all of your listeners who care deeply about the subject. Really appreciate you.
1: Thank you so much, Tilly. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye okay.
2: Now. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. Bye now. Bye.
1: Well, what a great message from Tilly. I love the perspective and her work on river restoration and especially the line she drew really between river restoration and a kind of human restoration. That's a message I think we need more of in today's world. And I just want to thank Tilly for, for bringing that, uh, that message to life so poignantly. So thanks so much, Tilly. And I'll just throw this out there. If you ever have room on one of those Colorado River float trips, you know, I'd be willing to rearrange things and find time in my schedule. I'm just saying. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes page for information and links on this episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast and click the first link that comes up. Again, the Water Values LLC and Bluefield Research are not affiliates. We are simply partners in a joint marketing arrangement, and we are not otherwise related. And as part of that joint marketing arrangement, Bluefield gives us a home on the web. So you can email me at david.mcimsey at dentons.com. If you have questions, issues, or just want to suggest a topic or a guest for an upcoming podcast, then you can sign up for the newsletter I mentioned at that landing page as well. Thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great day and an even better holiday season. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you again to our great sponsors. Sponsors of the podcast include Trinex, Mentor APM, Woodard & Curran, Intera, Xylem, the American waterworks association and black and beach. And this show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing to the water values podcast. Your support is truly appreciated in closing. Please remember to keep the core message of the water values podcast in mind. As you go about your daily business, water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.